Well, good morning, my friends. Wasn't that a sweet time? I would describe it for myself as just, just really refreshing. Just the presence of the Lord just washing over uh, the whole week and all that's been going on. Nothing significant, just life. Uh, and just to be in his presence with you guys and singing his praises. And that was sweet. Hope my friends at home were blessed as well. Uh, as uh, you may all be aware, we are in Acts chapter 5, so you can begin turning there, please, in your Bibles. There's some, for those in the room, available in seats around you or up here in the front corners if you do not have one. It's good for us all to be digging into the Word, looking at it together, making sense of it. Maybe if you get a little bored, you can read ahead, you know, these kinds of things here. Um, but we're going to pick up today in Acts 5. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time today. Thank you for the blessing of being able to worship together. Lord, uh, even those that aren't with us in this room, but Lord, being united in heart together uh, to go before you is just, um, it's good. It's, it's what you have designed us for. And Lord, it's what eternity will be about. Lord, as we, uh, we see the throne front and center uh, in all things. And so, Lord, continue to minister. And now, Lord, as we, our thinking is refined by the purity of your word, we ask that you would bless our time. Lord, that our hearts would be open to receive. Lord, that you would be lifted up and glorified. And Lord, indeed, all would be drawn to you um, in, a, in a fresh way for those that know you. And perhaps even this morning, some that don't yet know you would be drawn into your presence um, by your sweet Holy Spirit. And they'll give their life to you today. And we pray that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're picking up in, in chapter 5. We... Uh, studied the first 11 verses when we were last together, you may recall that, in which Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is contrasting this sweet, generous spirit of a guy by the name of Barnabas and the sort of the hypocrisy of another couple that was in the church, this couple Ananias and Sapphira. And we spent our time considering that. You can go back, you can read that, listen to that uh, message uh, if need be. But one of the things that we focused our attention on is the way that God, in that very critical juncture of the starting of the New Testament church, the way that the Lord insisted upon purity, that he wasn't going to allow this hypocrisy to just sort of become the norm of this church, and the way he intervened. And we saw that both Ananias and Sapphira, uh, they came to the end of their days um, in their hypocrisy. Now, as you can imagine, and we read this, this is verse 11 of chapter 5. That strong judgment from the hand of the Lord, it led to great fear. Notice it says, now great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Fear, respect, reverence, awe, all of those terms that are wrapped up in that idea of fear came upon the church. And not just the church, but those that were observing as well, those that were looking in. Very few, if any, would dare to play the hypocrite again, uh, at least in those immediate days there following. The scripture says there that fear came upon all of those in the church and that fear came upon all of those that were outside of the church. God was at work here. And what he had done, as we saw, he had taken steps to ensure the purity of his church. And then, as we see throughout the book of Acts, Coupled with that purity of his church was the power of the Holy Spirit at work. We'll pick up today in verse 12. It says this, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. And none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even so that they even carried out the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and mats, so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Again, the book of Acts is going to show us repeatedly how closely linked the purity of God's church is with the power of the working of God's Holy Spirit. And we've seen examples already of God using the apostles to do miracles. 
part of this whole problem that we're going to see encountered a little bit later on in our study this morning uh, stemmed from when Peter and John went into the temple, there was a lame man there. He asked for some coins, and Peter said, look, I don't have silver and gold for you, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, Christ rise up and walk. So we've seen other examples of where Peter and John were, and others were being used in the miraculous. They were able to perform these miracles as God's Holy Spirit worked through them. But what we take note of here in verse 12, notice it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. God was working in a very unique way in this particular moment in time. Now we're not told what those many signs and miracles and wonders were, but I think it's pretty safe to assume it was like the healing of that lame man that we saw back in chapter 3. Or it was like some of the miracles that we saw that Jesus was performing in the Gospels when he was walking on the earth. And you recall that Jesus sent out the disciples two by two, and they were proclaiming the message of the kingdom of God, and they were healing others. And so we can draw the assumption, I think it's fair to draw the assumption, that those were the kinds of miracles that we're seeing. The difference is that we're seeing many of those miracles here in Acts chapter 5, verse 12. And this was a direct answer to God's prayer. And so you recall after Peter and John healed that particular man that people, what's going on? Peter used it as an opportunity to preach the gospel. Eventually the leaders came to them, arrested Peter and John, eventually interrogated them, and then sent them on their way saying, you're not allowed anymore to speak or to teach in, in this man's name or about this particular Jesus fellow that you do. And John and Peter were like, well... Sorry, but we're going to have to keep doing what he told us to do. If I have to obey God or you, then I'm going to obey God. He told me to keep doing this. And so, then, yeah, you better not. And then they left. And they went home and they talked with the rest of the disciples. And then they prayed a prayer. You remember that prayer? Maybe you don't. It was a while ago. When I read it, you'll say, yeah, I remember that prayer now. It's this. Chapter 4, verse 29. It says, now, Lord, consider their threats. The high priest, the Sanhedrin, all these people. And enable us, your servants, to speak your word with great boldness, notice, and stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That was their prayer. Here we are, less than a chapter later, and God has answered that prayer. And what he's doing is this. God is confirming the word that is going forth from his apostles, and he's confirming it with these signs and these wonders. In Mark chapter 16, that's the, the more well-known passage, the Great Commission, comes from Matthew chapter 28. Mark chapter 16 is essentially the Great Commission as well. And in the Mark version, it says this, And they went and they preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message with accompanying signs. That's what's going on here in Acts chapter 5. The many signs and wonders, the purpose of them is to confirm the message that Peter and John and James and Andrew and the other apostles are proclaiming. To quote the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, we read this. God testified to it, to the message that was being proclaimed. In that case, it's Moses that he's referring to. God testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So God is using the miraculous to confirm the teaching. And Peter and John and the others here, it says the apostles, we're going to see they're going to be arrested, they went forth with a boldness. And it was a boldness on the part of these disciples to do what they were doing in light of the circumstances that they were facing that I think is pretty hard for a lot of us to comprehend. They were specifically told, don't do this anymore or else. And they went forth and they did this. You remember back in Acts 4, the religious leaders said, Acts 4.18, they said, so they called them, they charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Teaching would be the public proclamation, what they were doing in the temple. You're not allowed to do that anymore. All right, and if you do, you'll be in trouble. Speaking refers to one-on-one -on -one conversations. Hey, listen. If we can buy a house and the window's open and we hear you're talking about this Jesus, even in someone's private home, you're in trouble. 
don't do it. They weren't allowed to speak. They weren't allowed to teach the name of Jesus anymore. And yet, where are these guys performing these signs and miracles? They're doing so, as it says there in the next verse, in Solomon's portico. Solomon's portico, the word portico, we might use the word porch or covered pavilion of some sorts. That's where they are. And so you have the Temple Mount area. I forget right now exactly. I believe that it's, it's a 32-acre complex. The same Temple Mount area that exists today is the one that existed 2,000 years ago. And in sort of in the middle of that Temple Mount area was the temple, the building. Remember, very few people went into the actual building. And then around it were the various courts that the worshipers would come, the Jewish worshipers would come around that building, the courts. On the outside of that, there were these covered porches, porticos. And that's where the rabbis would go. They would set up shop and they would teach their disciples in those particular places. Jesus did it. Many of the other rabbis, whose names we do and do not know, did it. And here now in the book of Acts, what we're seeing is this is where the church is gathering as well. Remember, the church saw themselves as a Jewish sect. There's the Pharisees. They believe what they believe. There's the Sadducees. They believe what they believe. There were the Essenes. They're out in the, the wilderness, the desert, believing what they believe. They were all different sects of Judaism. And then there were the Christians, those that believed that the Christ the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, had come. So these guys they, and ladies, they saw themselves as Jews, fulfilled Jews, so to speak. The Messiah has come. And so they would go to the temple to worship, and then they would go off on the side over there to these porch areas covered out of the sun so they could be taught. Just as Jesus taught his disciples, now his disciples would teach their disciples, I guess you might say. But they're in the Temple Mount area. They couldn't be in a more public place than where they are right now. And yet that's where Peter and that's where James and that's where John and that's where the others would go to proclaim that which had been entrusted to them so that others might be able to hear and receive and understand for themselves. And so the church, growing in numbers. Remember we saw at the end of chapter 2 that there was about 3,000 that believed. We saw in somewhere, I believe it is in chapter 4, that now they numbered about 5,000 men. Uh, so if we add women into that, 10,000 or so um, that are there. So the church is growing rather rapidly. But as we look in verse 13, there's a hesitancy, excuse me, it's a rough one for me. There's a hesitancy for some to join in probably because of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira and the rumors that went out about that. So there's people that are sort of watching from afar still. We see that in verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them, held the apostles, held the church in high esteem. So people are just kind of pulling back and observing, listening, but not yet jumping in. There was a sense, a real sense of God's presence and God's power that was working amongst that church on, on that day, those days, that no one dared lightly associate themselves. Again, lest what happened to Ananias and Sapphira happened to them as well. Notice also in verse 13 what Luke points out. He points out the way in which the people held them in high esteem. So anyone that was willing, truly willing, they could see that there was a reality and that there was a power in the life and the ministry, the testimony of the apostles. Now, of course, the religious leaders, they're not interested. But anyone that was honest, that would come on the scene and that they would look, they would say, look, I, I may not understand what's going on. I may not believe what these guys yet, I may not yet believe what these guys believe, but you can't deny something is happening from these guys. So they were held in this high uh, esteem. They could see that God was using them as a channel. And that God was bearing witness uh, through them with their miracles. Luke goes on in verse 15. And he, he talks about how this power that is going forth from this apostle uh, was such that people were even laying their sick in the streets. So that when Peter would walk down the street and the sun would hit him and cast a shadow, the shadow might fall upon the sick and they might be healed. That's what people were doing. Now, we're not told 
if Peter's shadow had the ability, as God worked through him, to bring healing to these people, what we can certainly take away from this is that's what people were doing. That's what people were thinking. So we don't know if Peter's shadow had the ability to heal people or not, but that's what people were thinking. And so they're lining the streets in this parade-like fashion so that as Peter walked by, they might be healed. The clear thing is that we can see is God is working through these many uh, signs, wonders, miracles at the hands of the apostles. A very unique time in the history of the church. Even, you remember when Jesus said, look, greater works than these you guys shall do. You know, that, that's where this is at. That this is even more spectacular than what was going on in the earthly ministry of Jesus as he's working through his apostles in these particular ways. Verse 14 goes on, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that, he, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets. They laid them on cots and mats, so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Now, we might have expected that the strong discipline that came upon Ananias and Sapphira, that that might have had the effect, the effect of uh, sort of dwindling the numbers of the church. You, you can almost hear people saying, well, why would I want to go to a church like that? They're so judgmental. They strike people down dead. You, know, if, or whatever. you could almost hear people saying that. We, we might expect, because of the strong judgment that came upon Ananias and Sapphira, that the numbers would dwindle. Just the opposite is occurring here. The higher the standards of holiness that God required of his people, the more the church actually grew. Notice some of the words that, that uh, Luke uses here. He says people were coming to the Lord now more than ever. One of my favorite terms. That, that's, a, that's a pandemic term. Now more than ever. You need good insurance or whatever. And I, I don't like the term, but nonetheless, that's what it says here. More than ever. Notice also he uses the word multitudes. He says multitudes of both men and women were being added here. First time that Luke uses the word multitudes to describe the numbers that were coming in to the faith. And then he also says that more than ever, people were being added. Again, remember, back in chapter 2, he said 3,000 were added. And then in chapter 4, he said it was about 5,000 were added. And this is more than that. So I think it's fair for us to assume ten or tens of thousands of people consider themselves, count themselves as part of this first century church here. So the cleansing of the church that was connected with Ananias and Sapphira, it didn't hurt the church, it purified the church. And now in that purity, God was blessing so that many were coming to the faith. Now that's important for us to catch there. Many were coming to the faith. People aren't coming out to see a show. That's not what this is about. Oh, you got to get there. Make sure you get a front row seat because you don't know what's going to happen. People were coming to the faith. They weren't coming out to see the miracles. They were responding to those things that they were being taught. Primary to the manifestation of the Holy Spirit then and now. Primary to the manifestation of the Holy Spirit through the various miracles was the preaching of the gospel. Was the teaching of these apostles. That's what they had been commissioned to do. And that's what God was abundantly blessing so that more than ever, people were being added to the church. Are you with me? Con continuing or concluding the section, look at verse 16. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. God is beginning to, the gospel is beginning to spread outside of Jerusalem. You remember what Jesus said, go back to Jerusalem and wait, chapter 1, verse 8. Go back to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and it'll come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. That's what's beginning to happen here. Word is beginning to filter outside of Jerusalem to the neighboring towns around Jerusalem. That's the area of Judea. People's lives are being transformed externally as well as internally through the miraculous and the healing of the lame man and so on but also internally as well as people are being saved people's lives are being transformed and people are hearing about it and they're being drawn and they're coming 
William Barclay is a commentator I enjoy. He said this, men will always throng to a church where lives are being changed. Amen? And that's what's happening. People are hearing. People are seeing. People are wondering. What happened to you? Well, come and see. Come and see. And they were. Jesus said that was going to be the case. Now, Jesus had said they would be as witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria. I think his point was, you're going to leave Jerusalem. You need to leave Jerusalem. You got to go to Judea. You got to go to Samaria. But at this point in time and things, and they will do that. We read about that starting around Acts chapter 8 or so, when the persecution becomes so intense in Jerusalem that it forces the disciples to flee the city. And they begin to go all over the world, and they bring the gospel with them. But here, at this particular point in time, God is people bringing people to them so that they can communicate the truth of the gospel. And people are being changed, and they're going back to their towns and telling other people about it. Now, let's continue on, going to verse 17. We see the response of the religious leaders. We begin to notice a pattern in the book of Acts, in Luke's style of writing. One, one of the things that Luke does is he'll, he'll focus his attention on what's going on in the church, and then maybe the next chapter or the next section of the chapter is the way that people responded to that outside of the church. In the church, outside of the church. In the church, outside of the church. And here, Luke goes back again to outside of the church. How did people respond to the fact that great numbers, thousands of people were coming in and joining the church and becoming a part of what the Lord was doing? How do people respond to that? And he focuses his attention on the religious leaders. And from this point on, through the rest of the book, what we're going to see is the response of those outside of the church is increasingly to persecute the church. We have to put a stop to this. And if need be, we'll kill people in order to do so. That's what they thought they were doing with Jesus. We will kill him. The problem will go away. It didn't go away. We'll kill his apostles. The problem will go away. It didn't go away. But increasingly, we're going to start seeing this persecution from without. And it starts in verse 17. I'm going to read to 21. It says, Now the high priest, he rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles. They put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and he brought them out and he said go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life and when they heard this they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach again remember you're not allowed to speak you're not allowed to teach in the name of Jesus anymore Acts chapter 4 verse 18 here they're doing that exact same thing they had already been arrested twice now and they're going to go back and do the exact same thing Again, going back to Acts chapter 4, Peter told them they would. Acts 4.19, he said, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to him, you have to judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we've heard. And so based on that, this arrest was inevitable. You knew that it was going to come to this. These guys, they had exercised what a term that we have used in American history and probably elsewhere as well. They, they exercised their civil disobedience. We're going to do what we're going to do. And the rulers that be, they exercised their power as well. They arrested them. They're now facing the consequences of their particular decision. Those consequences is, are, will be that they will be arrested and they'll be beaten. We'll see that as well. Now, it's important for us to understand the fact that they experienced consequences. They went to jail. They were beaten. We'll see that a little bit later. Eventually, they'll be killed. That doesn't mean that God's not pleased with them. That doesn't mean that somehow they strayed from God's will because he didn't free them from those difficulties. It didn't mean they were outside of God's will. As we'll see, they're very much in the center of God's will. And sometimes God brings deliverance, and other times he doesn't. Sometimes God takes us out of the difficulty. Other times he's there with us in the midst of the difficulty. These guys here, they're going to be arrested once more. They're going to be put in prison, as we see. Notice Luke says in verse 17, he refers to the high priest as being a part of the Sadducees. And we saw the word Sadducees, um, the term, in our study of the Gospels. But most of the time in our study of the Gospels, Jesus' problem was with the Pharisees. They're the ones that gave him a hard time. 
as we get now into the book of Acts, those that give the church a problem are not so much the Pharisees, but it becomes the Sadducees that are um, opposed to them. The Pharisees numbered far many more people in Jerusalem, but the Sadducees had all the influence. They had all the power. They had all the authority. They were some of the key leading figures of the Sanhedrin, even though they were a smaller number. You'll notice here it talks about how the high priest was a Sadducee uh, as well. And the Sadducees were what we might call a very rationalistic people. They didn't believe in the miraculous. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles, all those sorts of things. Well, those things are magnified in our study of the book of Acts, aren't they? Even later on today, we're going to see even the angelic is magnified in the account that we're going to be looking at today. And so it makes sense that the Sadducees would be like furious at this group because everything the Sadducees stood for, the church was like the complete opposite of that. And they were growing in influence. Thousands and thousands of people were coming. And the Sadducees had to put a stop to that. The apostles were, you might say, bad for business because the Sadducees were the religious leaders. The Sadducees were the ones supposedly trained to be the teachers of others, the ones who had all of the answers. And they're the ones that had authority. I don't know who these backwoods country fishermen Christian people are from the Galilee region, who they think they are, but according to the Sadducees, they had to be stopped. Luke points out in verse 17 that they were filled with jealousy. Isn't that interesting? How sad. A bunch of grown men that had risen to sort of the pinnacle of society, and they had, there's such a state about them that they find themselves filled with jealousy toward the success of other people. I said, come on, man. You, you'd need to grow up a little bit. And so these Sadducees, they're filled with jealousy. They had been determined to stamp out Jesus. That didn't quite work. They're determined to stamp out these uh, disciples, these apostles. That doesn't seem to be working. Their power is slipping from their fingertips here. They're losing their authority, and they're jealous. It says they're jealous. And so verse 18, they arrest the apostles. Interesting, verse 19, the apostles would not remain arrested. Uh, they would not remain in custody. And not so much because of something they did. All right? Nobody you know, brought in a bobby pin and, and figured out how to get out or something like that. And so it says, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. And then we'll see he gave them instructions. I think there might be a little bit of divine humor here in that the Lord used the very thing that the Sadducees denied even existing, the angelic, and the Lord used an angel to free them. And again, he didn't have to. Other examples, we have earthquakes where the, the prison doors, you know, swing open. But I think the Lord just said, you know, you don't believe in me? Well, I don't believe in you. All right, we're going to have an angel do it. And the angel intervenes. He sends an angel, opens the door so that they're able to escape. The angel then closes the door quietly behind him. We'll see uh, as well. Notice, though, the angel also gives these apostles instructions. And we're assuming it's all 12 of the apostles. Earlier on, it was Peter and John, maybe the lame man as well that were put in jail. Here, it's referring to all of the apostles teaching and proclaiming and now all of the apostles arrested, it seems, all 12 of them are in prison. And the angel sets them free, but he does so with a purpose. He says to them, verse 20, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So God, through this angel, doesn't set them free primarily for their safety. That's not what this is about. Or primarily for their comfort. They were set free so that they could continue to do the work that he had told them to do, the thing that got them in trouble to begin with. And he tells them to go back to the very same place that they got in trouble doing that particular thing. They weren't set free for their own comfort or safety. They were set free so that they could continue the work. And the work was, I want you to go back and I want you to speak to the people all the words of this life. 
this Christian life that you're living. And I really appreciate the way that is worded, the, the way that the angel refers to the Christian life as this life. Because to be a follower of Christ is not just about acknowledging certain, certain doctrines, certain creeds, things like that. There's certainly a place for all of that. But to be a follower of Christ is to have life and to have it to the fullest. And what that means and what that entails and where that comes from. And that's what they were to go and to talk to the people about. That's what they were communicate, to communicate to the people. You remember Jesus, John chapter 10, verse 10, wonderful chapter of our Bibles. Jesus said, I have come that you, they, us, we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. Another version says that we would have it to the full. And so when we as Christians, when we talk about eternal life, we're not just talking about everlasting life in heaven after this particular life ends. We're talking about abundant life here and now that begins when you begin your walk with the Lord. Again, Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it to the full, this side of heaven. Go back and tell them about this. And so with those clear instructions, look at verse 21. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. These apostles, they obey remarkable obedience and boldness. I, I imagine most of us, many of us, I don't know if we should go back there. That's a bad idea. Why don't we just go on the other side of town, away from the temple, and we can talk there and people can come to us. Well, because we were told to go back to the temple and proclaim. And they do that. They go to the most public place that they could, the temple. And notice also it says they do so at daybreak. They go as early as they possibly can as well. These guys were committed to obeying the Lord and to doing it quickly. It's so important that we do so. When we obey the Lord, that we obey quickly. You put off obeying the Lord, inevitably you'll keep putting it off. Obey the Lord quickly. These guys, these men, they were men of great courage. Their behavior is almost reckless to some degree, considering that this is what got them arrested and in trouble, and yet they went. And that speaks, I think, to a very important governing principle for us as Christians. These guys, their ruling principle of life was not their safety. Their ruling principle in life was not their comfort. It was not their personal preferences. But their ruling principle in life was obedience to God's commands. What is the Lord telling us to do? Well, it wouldn't be safe, so obviously he wouldn't want you to do that. Are you sure it's obvious? Well, you know, it wouldn't be really comfortable for me to do that, and I do like my comfort, so obviously God's not in it. Are you sure? It wasn't about their personal preferences. It wasn't about their safety. It wasn't about their comfort. It was about obedience to the Lord's command. So the question that they asked themselves was not, is this course of action safe, but rather, is this what God would have us to do or not to do? And these disciples, they're ready to suffer for their convictions, no matter what the cost. For us, it may come to that someday. More than likely, what it's going to be for us is maybe it'll affect something at work. I know a number of believers that were bold about sharing their faith, and it affected promotions and things like that at work, or sort of put them on the outs with the boss or things like that. I know many young people, as they're bold about their faith, it impacts their relationship with other friends and things like that. And you're weird. And people, and they start, people make fun of them. We just don't want to be around them necessarily anymore. And if we go into life deciding how we're going to act in obedience to the Lord based on the possible ramifications, we've missed the point and we've missed the mark. These guys here, their, their question that they built their life upon is, what does God want me to do? And that's what they went and they did. Now, continuing on in verse 21, the scenario, the scene is that the high priest, the Sanhedrin, they're going to come back in the next morning, well, late morning, 10 a.m. or so. You know, we don't want to get too early. And so, you know, we know where they are. They're locked away in jail. We'll have a nice cup of coffee. We'll go out on the veranda. We'll take it in. We'll, and then we'll head down to the courthouse and we'll call the apostles here. Well, that's what they thought. And so they do that. They go through their morning. They come back to the Sanhedrin. They're all ready. All right, bring in the prisoners. All right, they go down to the prison, and there's nobody in the prison. 
the gates are locked to the prison. The guards are standing where they need to be standing there. The gate to the, the room they themselves were in was locked. But when they opened that up and they looked around, there were no prisoners in there. And I'll read it to you. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel. The senate of the people of Israel, that's the Sanhedrin, 70 of them. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned. They reported, we found the prison. It was securely locked. The guards were in place, standing at the doors. But when we opened the, those doors, no prisoners. We found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple, that's like the chief of police. When the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them. And they were wondering what this would come to. What is going on? What do you mean all the doors are locked, all the guards are in place? What is going on here? Greatly perplexed, trying to figure it out. And as this guy is trying to figure it out, somebody comes running in and he says, look, behold, I suspect, and I, I know actually, that the little court was somewhat near, the, the place where they were having court was somewhat near the temple area. And so one guy sees off in the distance. He says, look, there they are. Yes, that guy knows. Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Imagine. Then the captain with the officers went and brought. I imagine the, the high priest said, go get them or whatever. So then the, the captain with the officers went and he brought them, but notice, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So all the people loved the apostles. This is great. Oh, this, everyone be quiet so we can hear. And then these police officers come, but they have to do it very, would you please come with us? You know, this kind of thing, lest the crowd get mad at them. Fun little story uh, that we see here. Uh, verse 26, I, I just read that. Verse 27, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, what are you doing? We strictly charged you not to teach in that name. Can you hear the disgust when he says that? That name refers to Jesus. And they said, we told you, you may not speak or teach in that name. And yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man, some versions say, that man's blood upon us. Now, remember just how intimidating of a circumstance this all would have been. The apostles would have been brought before the Supreme Court of the day there, placed in the middle of all of these august, you know, super scholars and all of this, and they were just a bunch of regular guys, all right, fishermen people, most of them not having much of a schooling other than being with Jesus for three and a half years, and they're thrown there in the midst. Remember also that it was that Sanhedrin that was able to pull enough strings to get Jesus crucified and killed. And that was maybe a month or two ago, two months, three months ago. And so here they are now in the midst of that, how intimidating all of this might have been. The high priest, he begins, he said, look, we told you, you can't do this. Again, chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. And then he unwittingly pays them one of the nicest compliments that they could have received. He says to them, you have filled Jerusalem with this teaching. Now, he didn't mean it as a compliment, but what an incredible compliment. Everybody knows about Jesus because of you. Oh, I hope they say that of us. I would love it if somebody came up and said, man, everyone in Ewing Township knows about Jesus because of Calvary Chapel and their ministry or because of you, know, you as an individual. Or if your boss were to say, look, everybody in this building knows about Jesus, knows about heaven because of you. Praise the Lord. I've done what I was supposed to be doing. It's a wonderful indictment on them. He meant it as like a, a critique. They were probably blessed to receive it. Because it's a testimony of the effectiveness of their preaching. They were doing what God had called them to do how encouraged they must have been. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, well, look, we must obey God rather than men. Same thing that he said, basically the same thing that he said back in chapter 4. He says, look, if the choice is between obeying God and obeying man, we will always, we must always obey God 
rather than man. He goes on, Peter uses this as one more opportunity to preach. He says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. No beating around any bushes. No trying, you know, for everybody to feel good and comfortable with the message or anything like that. Peter comes right at it. We preach Jesus whom you killed by hanging on a tree. We preach that he's the Messiah. Earlier, they complained that what Peter and the others were trying to do, you're trying to put this man's blood upon us. Essentially, you've already done that yourself, is what Peter says to them. And we know that to be the case because back in the Gospels, when Jesus was being tried before Pilate, he, he put Jesus out, and Pilate says, look, I'm going to release the guy. It's obvious he hasn't done anything. I'll give him a good beating. He'll learn a lesson, and then I'm going to send him on the way. And you remember what the religious leader said in that instance. They said, you can't do that. You're no friend of Caesar's if you do that. Let this man's blood be upon us. Because Pilate had said, look, he's innocent. He didn't do anything deserving of death. Let his blood be upon us and our children. Here they are now saying, how dare you put his blood, how dare you say we're responsible for killing him? When just three months earlier, that's exactly what they said they were willing to receive. In another sense, though, Peter is trying to put the blood of Jesus on them, just as he put the blood of Jesus on every one of us that named the name of Christ. Jesus was trying to preach, or Peter was trying to preach in such a way that the blood of Christ would enter into their lives, wash over their sins, and atone, cover their sins. And so in that sense, Peter's like, you're right, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Verse 38, when they heard this, they were enraged. They wanted to kill them. Tough religious leaders. But a Pharisee in the council, a man by the name of Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in high honor by all the people, he stood up, he gave orders to put the men outside for a little while, and he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. And then he gives some examples. He says, for before these days, Thutius, or Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, I love that phrase, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and the movement came to nothing. Verse 37, after him, Judas, the Galilean, he rose up in the days of the census, right about when Jesus was born, and he drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. And so in this case, this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men, just leave them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it'll fail. Judas failed, Judas failed, it'll just fail. But, verse 39, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, and you might even find yourself opposing God. How about that? So the authorities, mostly the Sadducees, infuriated by these disciples. And how dare you come in here and lecture us and all these kinds of things. My version says they were enraged. It says that they wanted to kill them here. Furious with anger. Who are you to tell us that we need to repent? We're not the ones that need forgiveness, like you slobs from up north. Don't you know who we are? Don't try and blame us for Jesus' death. They're angry, they're mad, they're enraged. Some versions say they begin to plot to kill the apostles. Other versions say they wanted to kill the apostles. And then this guy Gamaliel. Now Gamaliel's a Pharisee. Remember the Sadducees and Pharisees, they're on the same governing board, but they're not really pals. They don't really like one another. They're oftentimes portrayed as being in opposition to one another. And so this fellow Gamaliel, he stands up. Now, as we see here, he's a well-respected individual. He's an older individual. He's been around a long time, and he's earned the respect and the trust of people. He's beloved. Uh, Jewish historians tell us he, in his day, he was the most loved rabbi of Israel um, here. The title that is given to him uh, is, goes beyond rabbi. Rabbi means teacher. His title that he is given is Rabban, R-A-B-B-A-N as opposed to rabbi, R-A-B-B-I. And that word means our teacher. He was sort of our beloved teacher of Israel. He was the one that we looked to as the voice of the nation, maybe similar to the way that people maybe look to like a Billy Graham 
in American history. And like, you know, what does Reverend Graham think on this? That kind of thing. He was the beloved teacher of Israel, most beloved teacher of Israel, and held in high honor. And so he rises up and he gives sort of these reasons, reasonable, uh, he comes forth and he said, look, we should all just take a breath and let's just take care with what we're about to do here. And he gives a couple of examples of Messiah-like figures. These really influential people that rose up, a whole bunch of people followed them. But in both cases, when the person died, the movement went away. All right, so here's this Jesus fellow. He rose up, lots of followers or whatever. Just ignore him, and it'll fade away. It'll die away, is how he approaches this here. That's his reasoning. Now, he reasons with worldly wisdom, which means he's kind of right and he's kind of wrong here because it's worldly wisdom. And the best that worldly wisdom can do is be kind of right and kind of wrong. And so he reasons here with worldly wisdom. The aspect of where he says, look, if this movement is of God, you're not going to be able to oppose it anyway. That's correct. That's true. This idea here that, look, if it's if it's a man, it's not going to come to nothing. That's not necessarily true. Movements of men thrive in society, particularly because we live in a fallen world. You know, what's one of the most profitable, prolific industries in America? The porn industry. That's not of God. It's not of God in any way at all. And so just because something is having success doesn't necessarily mean, well, God must be in it then. And so he's kind of right and he's kind of wrong the part that he does get right is this last point of verse 39 here. It's a, if it's of God, you're not going to be able to overthrow them. And so the Sadducees, whether they wanted to or not, they were sort of swayed. And they're like, all right, fine. We'll just whip them. And, you know, then I'm missing my point. You know what I mean? But nonetheless, that's their plan. We're going to whip them. Now, I'll say this about Gamaliel. I appreciate a guy like him. A reasoned guy that's able to take a breath in the midst of the kookiness and the chaos and speak reason into a situation. I appreciate that. But I would say this about Gamaliel. Gamaliel, I don't think you're as reasonable as Greg is saying that you are. Because there was plenty of evidence out there. What Gamaliel should have said in that instance is, why don't we do this? Since we're the religious leaders of this society, since it's our responsibility, why don't we start a commission? Why don't we get a little group, a committee, that'll get together and investigate these things? What if Jesus is this Messiah and we've missed it? Why don't we dig into these things and actually find out? That's what he should have said. Instead, he said, well, we'll just see what happens, sort of thing like that. He should have dug into it a little bit more. That's what he needed to do here. Well, anyway, it continues. It says in verse 39, they took his advice. 40, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them, and then they charged them. Once again, don't speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. So they left the presence of the council, and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. It says there that they beat them. That word beat it could be just simply translated, they skinned them. And so what it means is they whip them until their backs broke open. Right? These disciples, these apostles, got whipped until their backs broke open. You can imagine that hurts. Um, but notice what it says there in, I guess it's 41, and they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus' name. They considered it a privilege to have their backs torn open from the whips because the reason they were being torn open is because they were connected with Jesus. And they considered that to be an honor. Finally, every day in the temple, from house to house, they didn't stop teaching. They didn't stop preaching. They didn't stop talking about who Jesus is, despite the fact that they were told they can't. You must not. We charge you strictly. We'll beat you. And it's going to hurt. But they kept on teaching. Winston Churchill, you've heard of him, I'm sure. He wants to find a fanatic as someone who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. These believers were fanatics. 
I'd like to be a fanatic for Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I recognize, Lord, uh, that I fall short of that. And many times, someone looking at my life might say I'm fanatical about a whole lot of other things. Sports or politics or the stock market or uh, other things that, that interest me and I can't, they, people can't shut me up about. And I'm sure it's the same for many of us in this room. And yet, oftentimes we're not as fanatical about Christ. And a little bit of pressure is put on us. And we close our mouths and we won't speak uh, about the name of Jesus. And Lord, I'm not trying to guilt myself or anybody else into living a certain way. But Father, I, I will say this. We want to be so enlivened by your spirit. We want our hearts to, to swell in such a way that Jesus just has to come out. As the disciples said earlier, we, we just must do what it is we have been doing. And so, Father, would you work in us? Lord, by your spirit, would you reveal areas in us that maybe are quenching our fervor for you? Maybe we are bound by some fears and things that cause us to be apprehensive and uh, things we're afraid to risk. And Lord, would you bring those sort of to the light? Place them side by side with your magnificence. And Lord, show them to be what they really are and how they, they just don't compare. Lord, I, I just pray for us as a church, for us as individuals that leave this building. Lord, that when we go out, that it might be said of us, Lord, that we're filling this community with the teaching of Jesus. Lord, the days are short. Use us in the lives of others, we ask. Amen.